0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. What you're going to hear today is part two of a podcast takeover that Craig Casper from The Bravest Life uh, came up with us to do in order to raise awareness of other type one podcasts that are out there. So, uh, today's a little bit uh, exciting for me because I get to tell my story on my own podcast for the first time, and Craig does an amazing job uh, of digging in not only uh, to the questions that we have in the conversation, but also sticking to the uh, diabetics doing things sort of free-flowing format. So uh, I'm really grateful to him for coming on. If you want to check out his podcast, it's called Bravest Life, and you can find it at thebravestlife.com. Uh, It's also on iTunes and uh, Stitcher and Google Play. So, uh, without any further ado, let's uh, let's get down to the interview and enjoy as Craig Casper takes over the podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of diabetics from all across the world, Uh, and this is a little bit different—a little bit different episode. We're going to try something new today um, in an effort to spread more awareness about the other amazing Type One diabetic podcasts that are out there. Um, Craig Casper is going to take over Diabetics Doing Things today from The Bravest Life. Uh, Craig, welcome to the show. And then, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, steering this ship from here.
1: Hey, Rob, how are you? I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. You're doing such a great job with Diabetics Doing Things. I've been around for, for quite some time. And we connected, we came up with this really interesting idea to take over each other's show uh, just for an episode, basically interview each other. And as I said, I, the first thing I really wanted to say is I'm a big fan of what you're doing here. I love the message that you're putting out into the world. It's very much in line with my thinking and the reason why I started my podcast as well. I love your interview style. It's supernatural. And what I'm really hoping to do today is really just do your show justice. So um, what's interesting to me is that you spend, just like I do, a lot of time digging into personal stories of your guests and there's so much i'm sure that your audience would love to know about you. So this is where we flip the script and i get to interview the host of diabetics doing things, Mr. Rob Howe. So thanks for being on the show today, buddy.
0: Hey, i'm i'm excited. This is uh, this is a thing i never thought i'd get to experience and so uh, you know, i'm i'm happy that uh, that did you pitch me this idea? I'm super into it.
1: Yeah, i really appreciate it. And you know, it's great because as we as we've talked about offline a a bunch of times is that the community of people that are in our world of of type ones and type twos, it's such an an interesting community because once you get a bunch of people online uh, talking to one another, it seems like anything is possible, right? Um, So what I really want to understand is a lot about you today, but what I really want to start off with is a a question that I like to ask a lot of my guests on my show, is where did it all start from you? Where did you grow up?
0: Okay, so... um... I, I, it's, it's interesting. My childhood, my upbringing is, is great. I have, I'll say that I've said this before on the show. I'll say it again. Like I have two of the most amazing parents of all time. Um, I grew up, my dad was in the PC business uh, in the computers and the uh, right before the tech bubble kind of crashed in the, you know, as we got to like, you know, the year 2000 around there. So I moved around a lot. Um, when I was younger. So I was born uh, in Louisiana, moved to Wisconsin, Arizona, Austin, Texas, then up to Ohio for a few years, uh, then almost moved to California and North Carolina in the time I lived there before moving to Dallas in 1998. Uh, and then I lived here sort of uh, until I graduated high school and then traveled around a little bit, lived in Colorado. So uh, I have a pretty unique experience. And at the time, I didn't really You know, When I moved to a new city, I would tell people where I lived, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I've never moved like that before. So I knew it was different, but I didn't realize how uh, it shaped me until I was a little bit older. uh, And I just had so many different perspectives on what life was like in different parts of the United States, uh, how I was able to get around in social situations. So because of that, um, this is a weird thing to be good at, but I feel like I'm good at goodbyes. Um, and, huh. uh, and, and, and almost like meeting new people and starting over. And, and with that, I think, uh, comes uh, two things, one, a little bit of like confidence and in going into a place with, uh, in stepping out into the unknown. Um, but two, you know, a little bit of anxiety, uh, as well. And, and, in, in fears of like, you know, when you, uh, you, when you say goodbye, I remember saying goodbye to like my best friend at the time when I was like nine years old, moving to Dallas and, you know, I, that was a huge, like, heart-wrenching moment for me. And so now, you know, same thing. is like you don't want to you, – you have fears of saying, you know, uh, of getting too close and saying goodbye to people because you know that those things happen. Those things are out there. So kind of interesting. Um, so that was m- sort of my upbringing. And then um, I was diagnosed with, with diabetes at age 16. So, you know, I had sort of the yeah. two different um, – you know, but life before and life after I'm one of the, uh, you know, with adolescent diagnosis, you, you I remember life before diabetes. It's not as clear sometimes anymore. It sort of blurs over. But I definitely
1: remember it. I definitely want to dive into the diagnosis as well because that's oftentimes I find that that tends to shape us as well. but you you, you, you shared something with me and, and you, you, you uh, your story of of moving around quite a bit as a kid, now, I traveled quite a bit as a kid, but I didn't move per se. I still had my home base in New York. How do you think that in terms of, you said it shaped in terms of how you, uh, you approach relationships to a certain extent or how you're mindful of how you're approaching relationships. Um, you got really good at saying goodbyes, but do you think you have a little touch of wanderlust as a result of the fact that you weren't in one place for a long period of time as a kid?
0: Uh, Definitely. Uh, And I didn't, I think that's what I became more aware of as I got older. Um, I love traveling. um, And I think uh, even my girlfriend the other day was sort of giving me a hard time uh, talking because I used to talk about moving into into New York or to Seattle or uh, to San Francisco or LA or wherever. Um, And she's like, you never did those things. And I think part of it was just being aware that like that wanderlust came from not living somewhere for more than four or five years at a time growing up. Like that change was sort of just like ingrained in me. Yeah. Um, but you know, fortunately I've been able to travel a lot and that's been, that was a priority that I made in my early twenties is that I really wanted to see the world. Um, I got to do that a little bit as a part of the Washington generals, uh, playing against the Harlem Globetrotters. I got to see, oh, part, we're
1: going to get into that too. Yeah.
0: Which, yeah. I, and I, and I'm excited to dig into that as well because, you know, I got to see places that even even right. Even, anybody who would want to go there can't see, you know, places that civilians don't get to go. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of that was really cool. So, and then, you know, spending some time, about two years ago, I went to, uh, Singapore and Tokyo and, uh, spent some time in Japan just like by myself. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and so, yeah, finding those like wanderlust moments and really getting away and disconnecting, I think finding that space and I'm sure you feel this as well, you know, trying to, uh, get really involved in the online communities and on Instagram. Like it's really easy to be stuck on your phone all day or be connected to talking to people all the time. And so the wanderlust for me came from wanting to go experience places that I was out of my comfort zone where I could see things that were older than things that we have here in the U S and 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 just be free from all that for a little while and really, like, truly disconnect from all of the, you know, I have plenty of worries and, and uh, things on my list to do in, at home always. But, you know, when you really get out there and allow yourself to disconnect, I think that's a really powerful, beneficial thing.
1: What do you think is the most important lesson you've learned by traveling by yourself?
0: Um... The most important, man. Or, um, or
1: or perhaps maybe the one thing that you learned about yourself. Because a lot of times when we're taking these types of adventures, especially when we travel by ourselves, there's something that just pops up and says, wow, I never realized that I can do that. Or, wow, I really enjoy X. What's the one thing you learned about yourself out there on the road by yourself?
0: I think one, one event stands out in particular. I flew into, I think I left Singapore at like 5.30 in the morning and I flew to Tokyo and it's about a nine-hour flight. Uh, so I got into, I landed in Tokyo in the afternoon, and I took the train into Tokyo Station, which is a very busy station. And I got there like Friday afternoon, like right at rush hour, like five 5.30 to 6 p.m. And um, I had, I didn't, and this is my own fault, but admittedly didn't do a whole lot of research on how to get money in Japan. Like, you know, I just assumed that I could use my credit card or debit card and I'd be fine. That's, you know, in Singapore, it's, it's very Western, very much like that. But uh, in Japan, sometimes like you can you couldn't use. I couldn't use my credit card to buy my second train pass. I could use it to buy my uh, my Japan Rail card, but not my like city pass. So I'm in Tokyo Station. There, are, I think like two million people or something go through that station every afternoon. I looked it up afterwards. It's an amazing amount of people.
1: That's insane. It's wow. it's,
0: it's insane. Like it's uh, it's very similar to, like New York bumper to bumper like car traffic, but people. In like in a tunnel, um, so there's a lot of people going around. I stick out like a sore thumb. I'm a really big guy and yeah. really tall dude, and I've got like two bags, like uh, a che- you know, check bags going through. And two things stood out. Like one, I couldn't get any money, and I didn't have any Wi-Fi at the time. So I'm like, okay, well, what do I do? So I found a Starbucks. I sat. I went in and I sat down. I'm like, okay, I can get on the internet now. How do I find money? Uh, what do? I-? And there was basically just like, okay, in Japan. U.S. the the best ATM option is at the post office, but it's Friday after 5 p.m. and the post office is closed all weekend, so like cross that off the list. And the second place is 7-Eleven. So those are pretty much your only options, um, you know, from a convenience standpoint. Uh, so good lesson for anybody going there. And uh, so I found a 7-Eleven and I got in there to the ATM, but the ATM still wouldn't take uh, wouldn't take my card, and I'm like. Tweeting, hate tweeting Chase Bank, and then I was like, this, this is gonna be fine, blah blah blah. And uh and they're trying to help me out and they can't figure out why it's not working. So uh it, about an hour goes by, I'm bouncing from Starbucks to Starbucks, trying to just figure out the best way, and um my Airbnb ends up being only like four stops away from Tokyo Station, so I'm just like, you know what? I'm just gonna jump this rail basically. So I just like picked up my bag and just like went through the, the rail like sign or whatever and uh, like through the uh, the ticket taker and just just jumped it and got on the train, rode it and then and made it to my Airbnb. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna figure this out tomorrow. Um, and I think in that moment, like I had a couple very low, like stressful moments, like uh, Facebook calling and, and messaging my, my family back home being like, I can't, you know, what am I gonna do? And I'm sitting there like, well, they really can't help me. Like, I'm really, I'm truly on my own. And I realized in that moment that I hadn't been out of my comfort zone like that in years. Like, I don't even remember the last time that I really didn't, like, I was like, okay, well, it's on you. Like, no one can understand me. I don't speak the language. I don't have any money. And I've got to get somewhere. And so... It, it was just a really grounding, like also find like your own like sort of insignificance, right? Like you, we all go through our everyday life thinking like life and death situations about things that we do. And I'm like, man, like it really isn't that important in the grand scheme of things. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so it was, I don't know, it was sort of this like very big, like inevitability of life, like uh, just, you know, all, truly on your own out of your comfort zone type moment. And then, I made it. I made it to the, my Airbnb like no problem, uh, and then the next day I was able to like walk to a Western Union and get some uh, and get some money or wire some money to myself, and everything was totally fine. It was just like this, like I don't know this. I this weight kind of came off my shoulders in that in that moment.
1: It's amazing how everything ultimately just has a way of working itself out somehow. But what's beautiful about that is that life threw you a curveball and you were forced to just jump outside of your comfort zone and now you've expanded your comfort zone a little bit more because if that ever happens again, you have a frame of reference with which to work on, right? So it's it's pretty amazing how life teaches us lessons every day if we're wise enough to open our eyes just like you did and say, wow, this is a teaching moment to a certain extent. Let's figure our way out of it. Um, sounds pretty exciting. Actually, if you ask me, <laughs> it,
0: it was, it was exciting. I'm really glad it worked out, uh, with really no other hiccups. Uh, I'm trying to think of what, who, of the, who quoted this, but, uh, it was a quote that I love. It says, any fool can learn from experience. Um, yeah. and so like in that, I was like, you know what, I, I am going to learn from this. I had a great, like, you know, three or four days in Tokyo after that. Um, just, and you know, you find that like gratitude, things that, uh, <laughs> that happen in everyday life like being able to give someone money and then give you something in return or ask for something and they understand you like those little things uh, I, I'm immensely grateful for now because of that
1: it's great it, it, sh- it makes makes things get into perspective, no doubt. So you mentioned earlier that you were you were diagnosed at, at the age of 16 and it's interesting because I, I was I was personally diagnosed a little later. I was diagnosed at 27. so I understood what you were saying from this kind of pre-type 1 life to post-type 1 life. Um, and you said you had a, a huge support system that I've, I've found and I believe is super important for anybody's success in terms of living their optimal life when we're dealing with a chronic condition like with like type 1. But could you recall kind of in, in the, the days or the time immediately following your diagnosis, who did you turn to most? Was it your parents that you turned to most? Was there somebody else in your life that you kind of trusted as kind of a sounding board that, that you could kind of roll your thoughts off of? Who did you turn to?
0: I think, I think mostly my, my parents at the time, um, I was diagnosed on New Year's Day. So it was Christmas break and we were, you know, so they were there at the hospital with me the whole time. You know, they, my brother and sister were back at home. So my mom stayed with me sort of every step of the way. Um, and I definitely had like, you know, texting was, was still a thing. It was like very, sort of emerging as like the go-to medium for communication, Um, but so I remember texting my friends, um, and talking to like my, my two best friends at the time and, um, and, and really leaning on them. But like, it was just really, it was really interesting because like they weren't there as much as my parents were. So we were sort of experiencing that at the same time. So they were going through a lot as well as most type one parents do. Um, and so we sort of, they were having the same conversations with us and I remember, just this really overwhelming sense that everything was going to be okay. Um, And the people at Children's Medical Center in Dallas are amazing. And I didn't realize how fortunate I was to have that type of diagnosis experience. It was holiday break. I think there was one other kid in the entire hospital who had been diagnosed at that point in the whole endocrine wing. So I had... Like three diabetes educators and two doctors, and they were just like all over. They were bored, I think, and they were just all you know, all over me, and you know, teaching me everything I needed to know. But from the get-go, the thing that they said was, if you take care of yourself, everything that you wanted for your life is still within reach, and that was what I was most worried about.
1: Yeah, so when that's, they... per- that's perfect that they said that to you because that really set you in the right direction.
0: And that type of rhetoric is so 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 important um, immediately. Right. And I think of the, you know, now talking to, you know, almost a hundred type ones, very like in detail conversations like this, like that can make or break your, not only your first, you know, weeks, months, but years of living with type one. And so for me, like right away, I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to be fine. But also I felt so much better. Um, Like, I think there's always a little bit of denial when you're, when you're diagnosed, right. Or at least when I was, because I was a teenager and I knew everything. Um, but they gave me that saline bag and that insulin, like right away, I felt a hundred times better. And I was like, okay, yeah, this was what, what was going wrong. Um, and great. Now I can move forward and get on with kind of, you know, everything that I was doing. So all that to, to pull that back around to your question. Yeah, I was, um, my parents were those people. Uh, They continue to be those people. I think that's part of who they are. Uh, And in some ways, I'm a lot like both of them uh, in in that way. Like my personality is to jump into things and commit 100% right away. I definitely got that from my mom. Uh, And my dad uh, is, you know, a little bit more, you know, emotional on that side. I think he was just like, trying to He, I think he went through that. Did we do something? Type questions that a lot of type type one parents go through, like, is this our fault somehow? Yeah, super Um, common. And I think he went through that more than my mom did, just because she her background is a little bit more in nutrition. She owned a curves for twelve years, Um, so she you know had dealt with a lot of women with type two and and some type one diabetes. So she was a little bit more familiar. And. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they were right there. They were, they were going through it. It was their diagnosis too, uh, at the time. And so, yeah, I think they were, we, we, um, at that moment, at least through diabetes got a lot closer. And I think down the road, I mean, we certainly had our, uh, our, our fights in terms of, you know, living life. Um, and, you know, I was a little bit, uh, I'm a pretty, f- I was, I think a, a little bit more fiery and com- and competitive when I was younger um, especially as like a, an athlete. And one of my friends and I were talking about this recently, like you're just bred to be this like type a, um, you know, alpha male, like, you know, nobody can stop you. That's all. That's what they, that's what they try to turn you into. And so, you know, that was a little bit, I took it a little bit personally. And, and it sometimes, you know, as I look back, uh, I'm, I, I wish I would have responded differently to certain situations just and not been so fiery or maybe so passionate
1: that's life. And I guess that's just maturing, right? Mm -hmm. We all have those moments where we go through our teenage years, uh, into our early twenties, typically, especially as guys, especially guys who are athletes. Um, look, that's your job is, is to be as fiery as possible, as you said. So, um, you got to live and learn, you got to live and learn. But you mentioned, and you've been talking quite a bit about the, the, the athletics and the sports component. You went to the university of Colorado. Um, you played basketball there. When did basketball actually enter the picture for you?
0: Oh man. Uh, it was the first thing that I ever really loved. It's definitely, definitely like a first love type thing. I still love it. Um, I get so much from the game. It's given me um, every, almost every opportunity. When I think of you know how privileged my life has been, uh, you know I, I didn't know the things that the game would bring me when I was working for them. But uh, in terms of like college education and not having to have student student loans and getting to travel um, getting to meet different people, just like uh, learning about myself and like how hard I can work or, you know, the benefits of staying focused. Like, I don't know, man, it's, I think of sports, uh, it's so, it's like the last remaining piece of the old school. I don't know, but it's also very meditative and can be. Um, but I, it taught me how to work. Um, and so I remember like, there's a picture of me living in, like, uh, I had this like under the, under the stairway, like closet room with my toys in it when I was in, lived in Wisconsin. And there's just me in there and I have these, all these little toys around me, but I'm only holding the basketball with the basketball goal. And so I think just from a very young age, I was very drawn to it. My dad played basketball, um, and, you know, and loved the game and and just taught it to me early. So it was one of the first things I learned. Um, and really I, I took some time off of it, like when I, in my elementary school years, I sort of rediscovered it in like junior high age and, um, and then just loved it. It was just, it was my passion. I lived and breathed it. Um, when I wasn't playing it, I was watching it, studying it. I'm a super basketball stat nerd. Um, and you know, I think that just learning the game, I don't know, it was, it was the first thing that I ever a hundred percent truly loved in every way. Um, and that came back to, um, that was essential during the times where it was really hard, uh, in college. Cause it was hard. Um, and I think that was the one thing, everything had always come sort of easy. There were moments that were, you know, I worked really hard, but in college, like, you know, life kind of slaps you in the face and it's like, Oh, all 12 or 13 of these other guys on my team were also the best player in their league, in their state. So, yeah, and, and they want to play. So I think, you know, expecting to just go in and walk over, you know, you take that like alpha male mentality, throw 13 of those guys in a small environment together uh, with another guy who's the coach, who's that type of, who's that type of player person uh, mentality. It can be tough and it can wear you out and it really does become a job. So, um, but the
1: interesting part, interesting part of this is that you're, you're also adding an additional layer of because of your diagnosis. Now, I have to imagine, especially when you're functioning at a very high level like college athletics, and I've spoken to a lot of athletes before who are type one, um, that's something that's always, to a certain extent, in the back of your mind. So even though you feel like, yes, I'm strong, I'm overcoming this, and I could do whatever I want to do despite, and I totally agree with that mindset, there's always the, the hinge I'm guessing in the back of your mind. And I guess the question is, how did you manage those challenges of, of sort of you know, overcoming the type one factor?
0: I think it was really important, like going back to the way that they framed it in the hospital. Um, And the way that they said is as long as you take care of your diabetes, everything is within reach. So I think it always came back to that. Like, first, I have to take care of myself. Um, That wasn't always easy. There were certainly times in like practices or during intense workouts. My college coach was a nut for like fitness workouts and had some of like the most crazy uh, fitness you know, exploits, I would even call them, were some of our workouts. And I had to pull myself out of a few of them because my blood sugar crashed or I was too high or, uh, and I just couldn't do it. Um, And so I think those to me as like a competitor, I had to prioritize my own health uh, and I worked really hard at it behind the scenes. Uh, And, but it's not something that's very public. You know, it's really hard to say like, Hey team, you guys should be really proud of me today. I made it to practice and I'm going to be able to go through practice. Um, and I think, you know, so kind of suffering those in silence and I had great training staff. Um, you know, my, my friend, they're my friends now, you know, uh, Brian, John, Michael, Amy, and Jenny, they were throughout my four years there, uh, were just incredible support for me. So I would have conversations with them every season. Like I even switched from multiple daily injections to a pump, uh, in the middle of my college career. So, uh, that changed. So just education and say, Hey, like, here's what we need to have this. We need to have this. Like, how can we do better? How can we get ready for games? The biggest challenge I think was when I became, when I was starting to play more minutes, my junior and senior year, um, I would get so hyped up for games that my blood sugar would go from like fasting, fasting blood sugar would go from like 80 to like almost 400 just from like cortisol and stress and and adrenaline. So, that's, a
1: mess, that's a message though. That that's, a, that's Right there is a life lesson also because even though you might not be getting hopped, hyped up for a game nowadays, it, you would know exactly how your body is, is going to manage and how stress is going to impact your blood sugars. So that's a, that's a great lesson right there.
0: Oh, 100%. And I, and I think it's another one of those things that there's very few things today that give me that level of stress and cortisol and adrenaline to generate that type of response, but also I learned how to handle it. So, you know, had to change the way, had to change some of my music I listened to beforehand. I had to change the way I ate beforehand. I had to breathe a little bit more, I had to stay a little bit more relaxed. Um, and, you know, th- those things were essential for me. So now, uh, you know, when there's a stressful situation or whenever there's a big thing coming up, I'm more prepared to handle it from a diabetes perspective And I think part of that goes into the preparation is for whatever it is, whether it be a performance or a presentation or whatever the case is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I want to shift gears just slightly because you mentioned something earlier in our conversation, which I am personally super fascinated by the fact that you played for a period of time for the generals, which is the team that goes on tour and plays against the Harlem Globetrotters. And for me, I remember growing up with some of the original, you know, the 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 Harlem Globetrotters with Curly and Meadowlark Lemon, and these were the teams that I grew up on. And the fact that you actually played—and I have to tell you something—I think I actually might have look. And now that I know you, I think I might have seen you play with my kids a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah.
0: So is that is that well, it's possible. What show was that at Madison Square Garden?
1: We saw it at the Garden. That's right. Yeah.
0: So it it was probably during the same tour I was on, but there are something that a couple people don't know. So we'll dive in and we'll give like the full uh, behind the curtain look a little bit at the Globetrotters. So there are three different tours going at any given time. I think there's a total of like 500 to 600 Globetrotter shows a year around the world, which is first of all, insane. it's a. It was so cool to be a part of that basketball organization because you know I didn't even know this at the time, but you know my dad was born in 1946 in uh, in Tuskegee, Alabama. So small town, rural South, and his first experience with professional basketball was the Harlem Globetrotters. Wow. Um, and there's a lot of people, you know Dirk Nowitzki, first time he saw basketball, Harlem Globetrotters. So it's like I think the the impact globally on the game. Um, that the Harlem Globetrotters have had uh, over the years, especially guys like Curly Neal and Metalark Lemon, who you mentioned. I got to meet Metalark um, at a show; couldn't have been a nicer guy. Um, and I think the I underestimated that going in, and then going and being there on the sidelines for you know eighty some games um, was insane. I think you know on the bat on a second night of a back to back to back. Where you know you've played three games in two days and you've gone from city to city and you're living on a bus, uh, it's real easy to be tired and your body hurts and you're like, man, this is no good. I'm getting beat every night. <laughs> and uh, yeah, but then uh, the Globetrotters do this bit before the fourth quarter where they like they play the YMCA and all the kids from the stands get to run out on the court. So you know there's a thousand kids running around and the Globetrotters are doing the YMCA and we have to kind of sit there on the side and just watch this happen, but. Um, in those moments, I think you look at it and it's like, wow, like these kids are having the time of their life. Uh, there's a lot of magic around the Harlem Globetrotters. And I think that's what they bring that, um, is is sort of phasing out these days in terms of kids. I feel like there's so much access through like technology and social media that the magic of things has sort of been lost, but the Globetrotters still have that. Uh, and it was cool to be, you know, associated with it and to, to see it sort of happen in real time.
1: Yeah, I can say just from a personal perspective, it's such a special experience. Uh, look, my, my kids, especially my younger one, super into basketball, plays travel ball. So for, for, for him, it's entertainment. But for a lot of kids who are not super into basketball, this is what makes the sport accessible to them at the beginning, as you said. Um, and it, it sounds like you had a blast and it was probably the the experience of a lifetime for you. Um, just to be in, in that environment. So that sounds like such an amazing experience. Um, so so look, if, talking about kind of the creative aspect, because that that is a nice kind of segue into your creative life. And for I'm sure your audience knows you pretty well, but for those who are out there who are not familiar, you're also, um, from what I understand, the co-founder, managing director of a digital media agency called Recreation Dallas. So what I'm curious to understand is how has your creative mind been shaped by diabetes and on the opposite end, how has your diabetes been shaped by your creativity?
0: That's a great question. Uh, yes, I am. And I don't know, I don't talk about it much on my, on my podcast, but, um, about a year ago, I guess, um, in January, it'll be a year. Um, my partner and I, uh, this left our left our previous uh, agency and started our own uh, in another one of my entrepreneurial ventures. I think, uh, and started recreation, and we are you know a social and digital agency, um, and and you know so we do social media marketing, storytelling, video for, um, you know for our clients. So from a from a diabetes perspective, um, diabetes shaping my creativity my my role in in agencies in the past wasn't necessarily as much on the creative side as it was on the strategy and analytics and data side um and i think a lot of that comes from my diabetes because i think my my perspective and my point of view on analytics uh, in the age of big data is that you know we have so much data that you know you can easily just get lost in it and never make a decision get analysis paralysis um, and what people need are insights to make decisions, uh, much like diabetics do, right? You need to know what your blood sugar is, what your inputs have been, uh, what your expectation was and how you react. Um, and, and, and then also how do you be proactive around that? You don't want to always be reactive. So, uh, I always like to joke when I talk to young diabetics that everyone is just a little data scientist. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it always kind of gets a giggle, but, um, yeah, I think, I think that for me, trying to find ways to put more insights behind, you know, what do I do to make my life with type one diabetes better? Um, is it the way that I talk to myself and, and, and is it, is it clinical? Is it, uh, is it emotional? Is it community though? That type of creative problem, I think, um, from a diabetes perspective, fueled my creativity for helping brands and clients solve problems for their business.
1: That's um, such a perfect answer. I'm glad that you you made that connection so eloquently for me because that's what I was hoping you would say. And it's beautiful because it's it, we, if you take a look, it, pretty much we have the ability every single day to learn from our condition um, if, if we're open to it. And clearly this is taking it to a completely different level. And you've analyzed that's, I guess that's your mind. You have a very analytical mind, but that was beautifully said. So thank you.
0: Yeah. And I mean, man, it's once you realize that I think being open, being open to it, just like you said, is the key. Um, Be open to surprise yourself um, and surprise yourself with something, you know, or be delighted by something or, you know, celebrate a little victory. I think that's a, uh, that's feedback that I get sometimes from people who who comment on the podcast or on Instagram is is they, they feel and they love to see these people who are professional athletes or, uh, you know, yogis or speakers or authors or, uh, you know, rock climbers or, and ultra marathoners and all these people that are doing these amazing things. But I, I think the important thing as well is that, you know, a mom getting her kids to school in the morning and still maintaining a positive blood sugar for herself. That's a win. That, that's a big victory. And like leaving yourself, 100%, leave yeah. yourself open for that, you know, put a trophy on your wall for that. I think, um, you know, for me that those types of wins, like really those get me fired up, I think. So yeah, I think it is, you know, be leaving yourself open is, is the key to unlock all of that. Uh, and just, you know, be a little bit more gentle with yourself. And that's something that I've been, Uh, Really, I've really exposed myself more to in the last year or so as well, just on the mindfulness side of things, slowing down a little bit, softening edges, uh, trying to continue to be a student and really, really learn um, and find passion for that as well.
1: That's beautiful. Now, along those lines also, in terms of kind of opening yourself up for things, there's there's something that I read about you um, that you're also involved in improv comedy. And I find that fascinating because I, I, on on my show, I had interviewed uh, a psychologist uh, out on the West Coast who's also type one, who's also into improv. And I asked them this question, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about it, too. How important do you think humor is uh, in terms of our overall health uh, in general, but in res- with respect to diabetes in particular?
0: I think, I don't know. So improv to me is something that I did not expect to find. Uh, I was involved in like community theater and like church productions when I was a little kid Um, but my life has sort of you know taken a different turn from that and I didn't didn't expect to find it but when I got done playing with the Globetrotters uh, I had a friend in New York and a friend in LA that were taking classes um, at Upright Citizens Brigade uh, which is a very famous you know very uh, improv theater uh, in LA and New York and they were like, you would love this. You should try it. So I just searched for it and I found it. I found this amazing community here at Dallas comedy house. And, you know, for almost five years now I've been doing that and teaching and performing. And my students have a showcase tonight actually for their level one. Um, so back to your original question, the humor thing, like um, I think like this, the idea of play and like leaving, leaving your mind open for play as an adult is super, super important Um, I think the biggest changes that I see in people, um, especially when they come into class, because people come from all types of backgrounds, they could be, and it's usually a life event of some kind, uh, similar to a diagnosis with a chronic illness or something like that. Uh, They're not always catastrophic or like, um, uh, you know, big, major, like negative perception life events, like a divorce or getting fired or retiring or whatever. But they generally have something, like they moved to a new city, their kids moved out of the house. Um, you know, any sort of situation like that generally drives somebody to try something new. Um, and when people come into improv, like the, the foundational rules are like, yes and and support and listening. And I think people go through their entire life uh, living quote unquote successfully without ever having an idea of they're supported by someone. And I think that's the most like when I see the most profound change in people is when they put an idea out there that, you know, they just they don't even they may not even care about. It's just something that came to their mind, but they're nervous about it. They put it out there and then the other person hears it, receives it, supports it and takes it to another level. Um, Because, you know, that's the magic about improv to me is that. The people that I get to play with, uh, they're all different from me. They have different perspective, different experience. And because of that, they could hear something that I say and I could hear something that they say and think about it completely different. So the ideas and some of the things that I've gotten to be a part of, whether they're just scenes that happen for a second and go away forever, which is the case with most of the comedy that I do, um it doesn't matter because they in that moment like i got to do something that i never would have done otherwise had i not left myself open to play with someone else's idea um and allow myself to be supported by those people so uh, i think that's where you know for me that that's why comedy is so important to people and it's not making jokes and it's not uh you know doing a, a tight five minutes at an open mic those are all great and and, and take a lot of work and, and craft perfection in their own right but i think. Just the one simple idea of putting an idea out there and a complete stranger adult that you met in a class, af- you know, after work hours during the week, supporting an idea that you had and seeing what that unlocks and seeing like what kind of confidence and what kind of like change in behavior that can cause. Uh, that's why I do what I do from an improv perspective. I I love to see that magic, like people remembering like their childhood, like playing make believe. Uh, and so, you know, I joke about it. It's, you know, hey guys, this is not an important thing. We're just a bunch of adults playing make-believe in a room uh, at seven o'clock on a weeknight. Um, you know, but that's super important And like recognizing that not everybody has that luxury or not everybody has let themselves open up or let themselves be open to that possibility. Uh, that's why I do it. That's what, that's That's where that comes in for me from a mental health perspective. Uh, and I think it's helped me with my diabetes relationship because, uh, by no fault of our own, like there's four other or three other type ones uh, at the theater who we have like a Facebook message group and we've met each other over the years and performed together. Um, and so now we have like a comedy diabetes Facebook thread that we can go in and, you know, bitch about uh, having bad blood sugars or make jokes or, hey, another co worker said, uh, I can't have cupcakes today. Ha ha. You know, and you just have that, you know, little support. Group that I didn't know that I needed, um, yeah. And I think that was anyway. That's that's my long roundabout answer to to your question.
1: No, it was perfect. You know, it's interesting because it, a, a lot of that has a, a, a great deal to do with the the. And I, I, first of all, I, before I jump into the to the next questions, again, I want to thank you very much for working with me to make this possible because I I, I find uh, these stories, as you do, super interesting and uh, impactful. And what I want to talk about is kind of piggyback on what you said is putting something out there and letting, seeing what happens and how it develops over time. And I want to talk about impact because through this show, Diabetics Doing Things, you're making an amazing impact on anyone who's living with diabetes just by sharing these stories of people who are overcoming and living these incredible lives. And as they're sharing their stories, people start to recognize the fact that they're not alone and they have the ability to do whatever they want to do in life, despite the fact that that type one is a part of their life. But what I'm interested to understand from you is what was the motivation to actually launch the podcast in the first place?
0: Oh man. Um, well, this is going to actually tie back into another one of our, your first questions kind of about travel. Um, I get really like almost two years ago, a little, a little over two years ago, uh, I was in Colombia on a work exchange program through my previous employer. And uh, we would host uh, journalists, uh, marketers, uh, you know, writers from other countries in, in either Latin America or, or or Africa in our office. And through a government program called the International Center for Journalists, occasionally they would get to send someone back to the country of these other guys and get to do the work exchange. So I got to go to Colombia Uh, in Bogota for two weeks uh, in summer 2015 and um, for those who don't know uh, Bogota is is a beautiful huge city it's like 15 million people uh, up in the mountains of Colombia kind of right on the equator it's beautiful um, it's but it's huge and so and it has a lot of crime it's like a it's not. It's not as much of a. You know. You. Th- people think of Colombia. They think of like narcos, like Pablo Escobar, like crazy murders and stuff. It's just more like uh, a huge city, like like New York or Mexico City or Los Angeles. Like there's just a lot of crime there, um, and I stick out like a sore thumb, and I don't speak Spanish, so I wasn't allowed to go. Uh, from an, for the insurance of the trip, I wasn't allowed to leave my room past a certain time of night without my translator. And because I was there for two weeks, he didn't, couldn't spend every single night with me. So I spent a lot of time in my hotel room, which was fine, just kind of spaced away. I didn't have any work responsibilities I had to do, so I got space. Um, and in that time, I was trying to figure out like what I wanted to do with my life f- past a career perspective, past a, um, you know, that, that millennial question of like, Oh, what am I, what do I want to do? Right. I, and so I went back to a conversation I had with my dad, uh, when I was in high school, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my like national honor society, NHS hours that I had to do. Uh, and he said something that that has stuck with me ever since, like you're always happiest when you're helping people. So, okay. I was like, okay, well, I remember that. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, what, who do I, who do I help? Uh, and it was just like, for the first time it clicked to me. I was like, Hey Rob, like you have type one diabetes and you've still been able to do like a pretty cool amount of things. Um, and I, it just ne- that had never occurred to me. I was not very involved in the diabetic community. I didn't talk about my diabetes very much, not because I was embarrassed, but, uh, mostly cause I didn't want to be a burden to people. I didn't want to field questions. Um, but it reminded me of this story when I was in college. I was in a class, and I brought up my diabetes as an answer to a question. And a guy that I knew, um, he and I were both teaching assistants in another class. Uh, so we knew each other fairly well, had seen each other around campus. And he was like, hey, man, like I didn't know you had type 1 diabetes. He's like, because you play on the basketball team. I said, yeah. yeah. Um, and he goes, well, my cousin was just diagnosed with type one diabetes, and he's like eleven, and, his, and he loves triathlons. And his doctor told him that he probably shouldn't run triathlons anymore. And he's like, he's like, that struck me as interesting because you're here, and you're obviously like playing very competitive sports, and you seem to not be affected by it. And I was like, okay, well, give me your cousin's email, and we'll kind of email back and forth. So I sent him the email, talked about it. I was like, hey, you know, listen to your doctor, but Um, you know, my understanding is you can do everything you want to do as long as you take care of yourself and monitor yourself, take the extra steps necessary. Um, so, you know, do I I say, you know, try to figure out a way for you to accomplish what you want to do. And he sent it back and said, thank you. And we kind of exchanged emails for a while, about four months later, uh, I get an email with no subject line, uh, no like text. in it. it's just a picture and it's a picture of him with a participation medal of a triathlon.
1: Oh, that's so awesome.
0: And dude, I, I, like I still, I'm getting chills right now talking about it. That for me, I was like, wow, like I had no expectation of that. And what that gave me was just like this enormous, enormous sense of, uh, that, that that's what I needed to do. Uh, and so immediately in that moment, I remember that conversation with my dad. I remember, I, I recognized that I had type one diabetes and I, um, and I remembered that that interaction and that email. So I looked up the email, I found it. So I knew it, I knew I didn't make it up. It existed, Um, and then I was like, okay, well, you know, serial had just come out, like podcasts were like really like going through. And I was like, you know what? I may not be able to be the best type one blogger. There's a lot of really good ones, but hopefully I could start a really good, high quality type one podcast. Um, I could interview people and I could find them through Instagram and maybe that's what I'll do. So that seemed like something I could do and integrate it with the rest of my life, um, And so I did it Uh, and, and I thought, you know, from the, from the get go, I decided if I helped one person at all, it would be worth it. Um, and you know, from some of the matches that I've got, I know, I know I've, I've helped people and that like, that keeps me going that, and then I get to meet these people too, which is like people like you, um, where, you know, initially I don't know them, but I get to talk to them for an hour. Uh, I have so much in common with them, and it's just uh, it just enriches my my life like to like to the max. It's my it's my we talked about basketball being my first love. Like interacting with people with diabetes is what I love doing. It's yeah, so you're, you're
1: doing an amazing job. I, I I applaud you because you're definitely making an impact. And you're right, even if you touch one person or one family or one parent who is scared, you're doing an amazing thing. And and I know that that this the reach of your message will continue to grow and grow over time. So uh, I, I was just really curious about the, 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 the genesis of, of it because we all have our reasons for starting these types of projects and putting ourselves out there to a certain extent. And when there's real meaning behind it, as you've described, it, it definitely will have legs for a long time and it will make an impact for a long time. So uh, thanks for sharing that, that, uh, that, that genesis story with all of us. Um, just along those lines. And, and again, I just have a couple of final questions that I'm curious about, but I want to get real specific for a second. If you could pick out one, uh, particular lesson or guest that you have interviewed and a lesson from those guests, that guest that sticks, it sticks in your mind almost every day. Is there one particular thing that comes to mind?
0: Um, well, first of all, they all have some, uh, an effect on me in some way. So I don't want to play favorites here, but I will say uh, Jeremy Robertson. Um, I'm trying to think what episode number he is off the top of my head, but it's diabetics doing aviation. Um, he's, uh, Jeremy's from Australia. He was diagnosed later in his life at 31, I think, uh, so very similar to you. Uh, and he was a Qantas Airlines pilot. So he flew from Sydney to L.A. and like around the Far East as a Qantas pilot. So, um, you know, a a commercial 757, like, you know, a pilot. So uh, his whole life he loved planes. He loved flying. Like he knew that he wanted to go to flight school from the time he was like seven years old. Like this is his number one thing he loved in his life. Uh, He comes to L.A. on, on a layover and he's like feeling really drowsy, whatever. So he goes to the doctor. Uh, which is i guess you know <laughs> a thing that pilots do if they if they're feeling under the weather because they you know they have pretty strict medical boards that they've got to go by so he goes in the doctor's like yeah he's like it looks like man you probably got type 1 diabetes like you probably shouldn't fly home um, he's like but you should go home as soon as you can go back to australia and make sure that this is you know this is happening so um, at that point you know he gets diagnosed and they take away his license like completely so hmm. For me, the biggest part of that is not that, you know, I, I, I try not to get up in arms about the things that diabetics are not allowed to do because I think it does make sense in a certain, to a certain extent. Like, you know, you don't wanna have a hypo in the middle of a, you know, overseas flight where you've got, you know, and all the protocols are there and you can't safely do that, right? Um, so it, on one hand, it makes sense. But on the other hand, f- the big thing I took away is that this guy, Jeremy, for his entire life had wanted one thing, gotten it, and then had to change. Um, and so what do you do in that moment? What do you do when that, when life throws you that kind of curveball? Uh, how do you respond? I think like talking about the strength and like the character of a person in that moment, those decisions you make after that are, you know, really what define you. And so listen to this, the guy takes this prognosis, takes this like wrenching out of his hands of his dream and decides to go back to medical school to become a doctor, to become an endo. So he's about to he's about to finish up like all of his schooling, and but during that time, like he's already gotten one or two degrees. You know, medical school is a long process. Um, so not only is he now a doctor, but he's also a pilot. So he's using his power in both of those uh, arenas to change legislation for people with type one, so that. Uh, that they can, they may not be able to fly commercial jets yet, but they can fly small passenger aircraft. So guys who love to fly um, can get their wings back.
1: That's such a great a, a great mission right there. It sounds like a it's a personal uh, it's very, clearly very personal on on his part, but he's making an impact for every single person that's impacted by diabetes. Um, wow.
0: And I just, I, I sh- was shaking my head during that interview, and I'm like, God, like this guy, you know, if, if we all just responded to situations that are potentially devastating like that, just like 1% better like that, how much better off we'd be, and how privileged I am to know people like that. Uh, I was blown away.
1: Yeah, it's not like he's just going back for, for a master's degree, he's going back for a medical degree, with, which, with all that goes along with it, the prerequisites, medical school, Residency, however long it's going to take him, that's a huge amount of dedication. Uh, so I applaud him and thank you for sharing that story. I have to look up that episode now. Uh, I'm sure you'll you'll link to it on your page, so, so you can find it. Um, but that that sounds like something that I need to listen to after we're done with our conversation. Uh, super inspiring. So so here's my final question for you. And keeping with the theme of diabetics doing things, I stole this question from you, and I'm I'm proud to say it. <laughs> so I love it. So, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're famous for asking this question in a bunch of your interviews. So you're in the airport. The door is about to close, and you have one thing to tell someone who was recently diagnosed with type one diabetes. What would that sage piece of advice be?
0: So I want I do want to say that there are two types of answers to this question. Uh, there are people who humor me, and they and they take my context. Uh, and they give me their their one thing that they would say in the thirty seconds, and then there are people who are like, uh, "Forget your rules, I'm just gonna just miss my flight." Um, so I do want to give a shout out to those people who just like completely reject my context and take matters <coughs> into their own hands. I appreciate that so much, and it makes me laugh every time. Uh, but for the sake of this question, uh, because I do want to answer it, um, I, I will. And I and I think the main thing is, speak up. Whether you're struggling, whether you aren't struggling, whether you just have type one diabetes, like I think of that moment in that class where I just used a personal anecdote from my life to apply to some management question, uh, seemingly totally unrelated. Uh, if I hadn't done that, maybe I don't get to impact that guy's life who's uh, you know trying to run triathlons. Um, Maybe I don't have diabetics doing things today. Maybe I haven't met the thousands of people that I've met with type one since then. Um, so, you know, you're not alone. S- speak up. Ask for help. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned from this um, from this podcast experience is I, I've gotten to where I've gotten and by no means, uh, you know, do I think it's, you know, do I rest on my laurels and say it's this amazing thing. I still want to get better. I still want to grow. I still want to accomplish new things and meet new people. I I could not have done it without the help of all of these giants that I get to stand on the shoulders of. Um, and so, but if I don't if I don't ask for help, none of it happens. People, if I, almost every person, I would say ninety nine percent of the people who I've asked for help, uh, whether coming on the show to be interviewed whether to point me connect me with someone whether to point me in the right direction asking is the heart is the if i don't do that it doesn't happen if you don't ask for help you cannot get it um don't leave it up to chance take control of it and and ask and speak up ask for help uh and i think you know that's that's what i would say and then i'd jump on the plane whisk away in my in my jet plane um (laughs) as the all the other passengers boo me as i run on the plane uh with with seconds to spare (laughs)
1: Very James Bond-esque. That's awesome. (laughs) Rob, listen, this was so awesome. Um, You're making, as I said, uh, throughout the show, uh, you're you're doing such an amazing job. Uh, You're a model. Your story is inspirational. And I know that you love to tell the stories of your guests, but I think, and I'm glad that we had an opportunity to tell your story uh, in depth because there's no doubt that You talk about giants, but what you're doing is putting you right in line with all those people. So thanks for what you're doing. Thank you for letting me crash your world and take over your podcast for this episode. It's been a great experience for me personally. I've learned a lot and uh, I look forward to seeing how you and I are going to collaborate more in the future because I think that uh, we're going to become good friends really quickly.
0: I couldn't agree more. And uh, and Craig, thank you for, you know, when we reached out and made this happen for, uh, for pitching this as the way as the way to go about it. It was super fun, super refreshing, and uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, the next project we get to work on.
1: Sounds awesome. We'll talk soon. Take care, Rob.
0: Well, thank you for listening to the Diabetics Doing Things podcast. That's it for The Takeover, but if you want to check out part one of The Takeover, where I go on Craig's podcast, The Bravest Life, uh, and interview him, you can check that out at thebravestlife.com. Um, You can also find him on Instagram at Craig Casper or at Bravest Life. If you want to subscribe to our email list, you can do so at diabeticsdoingthings.com.